Let's remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Continuing forward together in the book of Acts, we're in chapter 2. Today we're going to take a close look at verse 42. The title of the sermon is called The Thriving Church. I'll read from verse 37 through to verse 47 of Acts chapter 2. And please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. <clears throat> you know that hymn that we just finished singing together, O Church Arise. There's a, uh, a line there in verse 3. This victory march continues till the day. Every eye and heart shall see him. And we are a part of that victory march. And that's a joyful thing to consider that we're a part of this epic plan that God has in this earth. And it's fitting to realize that if we look back, we see the march began in these verses. This march that we're a part of began in the verses that we're looking at today. And the question is are we in step? Are we marching properly? Do we have the victory march that they had? Calvin says, Luke doth not in vain reckon up these four things when as he will describe unto us the well-ordered state of the church. You hear that? The well-ordered state of the church. And we must endeavor to keep and observe this order if we will be truly judged to be the church before God and the angels and not only to make boast of the name thereof amongst men, we must endeavor to keep and observe this order if we will be truly judged to be the church. So this is a really formative text. Uh, every church, it would seem from time to time, should go back to this text and examine themselves and say, hey, are we in step with this victory march? The sermon is entitled The Thriving Church because that's what was happening. They were thriving. <clears throat> they continued steadfastly. We'll talk about that idea. And there were four things that they continued steadfastly in. All four of these things. 
the apostles' doctrine, not doctrine, sorry about that in your notes, the apostles' doctrine in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. And you'll notice I put the in front of all four of them because that's how it is in the original language. There's something special about each of these activities. And then some questions to know and to love and to obey God. And we'll be having some questions along the way as well to bring this home to us and to have us see how much in step we are with the Scripture. So, they continued steadfastly. What's this idea? Continued steadfastly. You see the Greek word there. It is to adhere, to be devoted. It is to be constant. It is to be steadfastly attentive unto. It's to give unremitting care to something. It also carries with it the concept of persevering and not fainting. To be constant, to be in constant readiness. So this idea uh, to continue steadfastly means that this is what these people are about. Not just when they're together with one another, but this sets them for who they are for all of their lives. This is the overarching reason for their existence. This is what they do. This is who they are. doesn't matter what profession they are. doesn't matter what they do with their hands to make their money. This is who they are. This is what they're about. Other translations, the ESV says they devoted themselves. The NASB said continually devoting themselves. This is why we have a section in our worship called consecration. This is where we are brought into this awareness. We need to be reminded of this. You walk out the door, you go and start doing your life, and if it's not for the Holy Spirit of God and the grace of God in your life, you will not be continually, steadfastly devoted to the things that we as the people of God should be devoted to. NASB says continually devoting themselves. There are some other uses of this word in the book of Acts, and you, you see the idea clarified there. And we've seen it already in chapter 1 in verse 14. It says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. The steadfast devotion is a defining feature. Verse 46 of chapter 2, which we'll see in subsequent sermons, continuing daily with one, uh, with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. This isn't something that marked them for a moment. This isn't something that marked them while they were still excited. This gripped them. This defined them. Chapter 6. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here we have the leaders, those who are the ministers being set apart so that they are actually giving themselves continually not only to these other items, but also to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. These are the ones set apart to know and to teach the Apostles' doctrine. In chapter 8, we see another usage. It's similar. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. So Simon had become a Christian, he believed, and now he's being discipled by Philip. And so he adheres to him. He's, con he's continually with him. He's there to learn from him. So it's basically the apostles' doctrine coming to, to him through Philip. Chapter 10. We see another usage. Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So these were his servants who 
We're constantly waiting on him. So we get another sense of the use of this term. So brothers and sisters, what marked the church after the Pentecost harvest? The souls that were brought in that we read about, the very next thing that's mentioned are these activities. What marked them? What marked them was a corporate, steadfast, continual devotion to just a few things. Corporate, steadfast, continual devotion to just a few things. Bach says, the expression of devoting themselves has the idea of persistence or persevering in something. Now, this tells us what they're doing, but as we go through this sermon, the question we want to ask ourselves is why? Why were they doing this? What were they after? What had gripped their hearts? Note that they all shared this steadfast devotion. When God saved this crowd, when he brought these souls in, he brought them together into one body. They didn't isolate themselves. They pursued God together. They didn't go home and start a home church. Uh, They didn't go and, and wait until they could find the perfect place to get the perfect doctrine who had it all right. They humbled themselves. They submitted themselves. And they brought themselves under God to one another. Calvin says, Luke doth also afterward commend their constancy, who, as he said, did willingly embrace this word of the apostles, showing that they were joined unto the disciples, or that they were engrafted into the same body. So when they were baptized, it wasn't just an outward act. It was a sign pointing to what God had done in all of them to make them one in Christ. To make them one in Christ. The baptism into Christ causes them to be the people of Christ. And this this book is called the book of Acts, right? We think of it sometimes as the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But it's really the continuation of of the teaching and the acts of Jesus through his people. So these people are coming together and they're living out the life that Christ lived in their presence. I also want us to note they didn't fade away after having an emotional experience. If the Holy Spirit has done something in someone, it will not be a shooting star. It will not be a flash in the pan. It will not be like popcorn. It will persist. It will be like the streams that flow from heaven endlessly. That's what it will be like in us and through us. Do heaven's fountains ever fade? Does the Son of God ever grow old? Is, is, does his less luster ever fade? Of course not. And so those who have come into vital union with him, neither shall their lives away. They did not. They pressed into the life of God's church and that is worth noting. When God is truly at work in someone, they will find it intolerable not to be with the people of God. Intolerable. As imperfect as every church is, they will find it intolerable not to be a part of one of them. Matthew Poole says, they continued steadfastly. This speaks the reality of their conversion and that they were not only for the present affected with what they had heard and seen. So this this is worth emphasizing. 
if you think you can just walk away from the church of the living God and just go and worship God on your own at home, just do your own thing, you are, you're walking down a dangerous path. That could be the path to perdition. I mean, listen to how he says it. It speaks of the reality of their conversion. Their desire to continue steadfastly together speaks of the reality of their conversion. Love for the people of God has always been one of the first evidences of being born again. Note also the balance that's occurring here. As we go through these four items, there's this beautiful balance that only the Holy Spirit, it's a dance between these four items, and it must be divinely choreographed, or, it'll, or it won't work. <clears throat> you know, we, we can't sit down and make a program this many hours for this, this many hours for that. This. I mean, we need to see all of these elements, and we do learn and so we bring them into our life but these are also things that just naturally overflow for those who've been born again is what god does and it is a new way of life when someone comes to christ they are brought into a new way of life because there's a new purpose a new king a new law a new love a new focus everything in life is then interpreted within the context of this new way of life of knowing the Savior. Everything must be under this new way of life. Amen. And it's balanced, too. They continued steadfastly in all four of the practices that we will examine. Now, they are listed in a certain order, but they have to be listed in a particular order. And I do think there is meaning in the order, but it is balanced. It's four things that they're doing. They're not more devoted to any one area at the expense of another area. So what we see here, as I've said, this is a new way of life. This is a way of living. And it is what? It is the beautiful thing that I spoke about last Sunday during the Lord's Supper when we looked at Psalm 23, which, praise be to God, was the reading today. That is what God is doing in his people. He creates this beautiful society of people that he shepherds, that he teaches, that he grows up love for him and love for one another, love for his word, love for the prayers, love for the kingdom. He does this and people want to be a part of it when he is doing it. A life built around these four practices emerges in this text. And we need to see, as you see, I emphasize it in your notes, they are designed by God for the purpose of drawing near to him together. Why are they motivated to do these things? Because this is where they find more of Christ. This is where they find God, is in these simple practices that he gives to his church. We've come to call them the means of grace. And we want to partake of the means of grace, diligently building our lives, our families, our churches, our world. This society that is being described here is to be the abundance of shalom spoken of in Psalm 37. That's what we're seeing here, the abundance of shalom. It's a beautiful thing. Matthew Henry says, they kept close to holy ordinances and abounded in all instances of piety and devotion. For Christianity, admitted in the power of it, will dispose the soul to communion with God in all those ways wherein he has appointed us to meet him and promised to meet us. So brothers and sisters, beneath this, what we're seeing is these people are in communion with 
God. And it leads to this way of life. When our own personal preferences, though, on the other hand, on the other hand, when we forget about God, we forget the purpose of the church. When our own personal preferences drive our pursuit of God, we create unbalanced ways of life, unbalanced churches, off-kilter communities, and denominational pride. Maybe you're a doctrine person, and so you're not so much into the prayers. Or maybe you love the fellowship, but you just kind of endure the preaching and the doctrine, etc. You understand, you can see these four elements. You could probably take this as a grid and use it to define a lot of denominations and churches that come into existence. So the point here is to beware unbalanced Christianity. And of course, we need to be examining ourselves, don't we? Who are we? What's our church like as we go through this? Bach says, the acts are each highlighted with articles, the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Each of them is its own item, but they're blended together in the course of Christian worship and Christian living. They come and they reveal themselves to the world. And we'll see the impact on the world that it has as we look at subsequent sermons. So this is defining the church, what they do, who they are, and then subsequent sermons, we're going to look at how that impacted the world at that time. Here's a question. Ask yourself this question. Let's say God had a video of your life. Put it up here. We'd all look at it together. What would we see as your continual, steadfast devotion? What would we say you are diligently pursuing day after day? What are you going after? How would someone describe your way of life? Do we have a way of life that is steadfast? Looking at our church now, thinking about this as a church, do we have a way of life that is steadfast and balanced in pursuing Christ together? Calvin says, this example ought to make us not a little ashamed For whereas there was a great multitude converted unto Christ with one sermon, a hundred sermons can scarce move a few of us. And whereas Luke says that they continued, there is scarce one amongst ten that does show even a mean desire to profit and go forward. Yea, rather the more part doth soon loathe our doctrine. Woe be therefore to the sluggishness and lightness of the world. Why why are we like this? It's, it's, It's simple. Because we do not know and love Christ like we should. When we understand that these are the things that He does to draw us closer to Him and give us deeper drinks from that fountain day after day and to strengthen us and make us able to complete the commission that He's given to us and give us the ability to have comfort and strength in the midst of unforeseen trials, we will come and we will drink. This is how we drink. And I think that's why we don't do it. It's because we don't perceive who he is. And that this is the way that he has made us to know him and to love him more. So what are these four things? First of all, the apostles' doctrine. They continued steadfastly in devotion to the apostles' doctrine. What is doctrine? It is that which is taught. It is teaching concerning something. Okay, so this is the apostles' doctrine concerning Jesus. It's about the Messiah. Now, who are these 12? 
right? The apostles' doctrine, that means there's 12 people, and the 12 of them have one doctrine. You get that? These 12 men have come together, and they have one. It's not 12 doctrines. It's 12 men with one doctrine. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. He's a good Judas. And then Judas Iscariot was replaced by Matthias. We know that from Acts 126. So there's 12 men with one doctrine. Now, look, you can't get 12 men to agree on what color the sky is. This is what God did. And you can't get 12 men who've seen the same event to even agree on what they've seen. Well, these 12 men do. They witnessed. They saw. And God gave them one doctrine that they agreed on. We should wonder. We should praise God for this. Note the power of God. 12 men all agreeing on one message, one teaching about the Messiah. Their doctrine is about Jesus Christ and everything in the Bible points to Christ. How can this be? Because they're only teaching what Jesus didn't taught. We know this from Acts 1.1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And that's from Acts 1.1. Defines the whole book. Defines the people of God. This is what they're teaching. What Jesus did and what Jesus... They're doing what Jesus did. They're teaching what Jesus taught. So where do we find the apostles' doctrine? Do we have to get a time machine and go back and listen to them? I mean, we weren't there. We didn't hear what they said. How can we know what it is? It's the New Testament. Okay? And we see as we study the New Testament that every doctrine in the New Testament was first taught in the Old Testament. Yes, in the Old Testament, often it was taught with less clarity, more in shadow, less certainty, but it was also taught there every Christian doctrine. It's taught first in the Old Covenant writings. It's a wondrous, wondrous thing to realize as we step back that the Apostles' doctrine is taught from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, verse 21. That is the whole counsel of God as we read from Acts 20 today. That is the Apostles' doctrine. The Bereans understood this in Acts 17 when Paul was preaching to them. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. What scriptures did they have? They had the old covenant writings. So Paul knew, and these Bereans were commended for it, that his message had to square with the Old Covenant writings. The apostles' doctrine, the whole counsel of God, had to square with the Old It could not contradict, and it never did. It actually clarifies, comments on, opens up, clarifies. It's the same message. <clears throat> it appears this thriving church gave much daily attention to the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. I've thought about this as I was preparing for this sermon, who we are as a church. I remember one time sitting with a pastor friend, and he said, listen, teach, teach some more, preach, preach some more, teach, 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 preach, 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 keep the word coming, keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. And I was like, easy. But now I think I understand what he's talking about. Are we continuing steadfast? you think the life of our church satisfies this concept? 
don't know. A lot of ideas are coming to mind as I'm pondering maybe the Lord calling us to do better in this regard. Do you think our church should have more teaching and preaching taking place as a part of the regularly scheduled life of our church? I can't help but think when I am honest and examine who we are that we need more teaching of God's Word. We need more preaching of God's Word. We need to take the Bible and we need to make sure that we teach this whole book to everybody in this church over and over and over and over and over again until he comes back. And not like once a hundred years, right? Maybe we get through it once every ten years. Maybe even every five years. It depends on how many teachers God gives us. It depends on how much time we're willing to spend together in this book. So, may God bless us to consider that and see what he may do in the future as we consider that. Matthew Henry says, they were diligent and constant in their attendance upon the preaching of the word. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and never disowned nor deserted it. Or as it may be read, they continued constant to the apostles' teaching or instruction. By baptism, they were discipled to be taught and they were willing to be taught. Note, those who have given up their names to Christ must make conscience of hearing his word. For thereby we give honor to him and build up ourselves in our most holy faith. Brothers and sisters, we find our pursuit of Christ satisfied by steadfast devotion to his word together. It's safe to say that the pace of our sanctification will be related to the pace of our ingestion of God's word. All right, next. They also devoted themselves continually steadfast in the fellowship. They continued steadfastly in devotion to the fellowship. Now this is beautiful. Fellowship, association, community, joint participation, intimacy. This is real friendship, real enjoyment of one another in real life to where we really know each other in the context of God's word and we're helping one another know Jesus better. And it's real. And it's joyful. And it's satisfying. And it's grace-filled because we accept one another because we are unified in Christ. And we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And so we will never leave or forsake one another. And so we love, we serve, we learn, we help. We're together. We enjoy good things. So what is most directly in view here? First, is fellowship with one another. Close and frequent togetherness as the church. We see this. Now, a lot of this is circumstantial. Like There's all these Jews that have traveled so far, and they've come to Christ, they've been baptized, and now they're there, and they didn't have plans to stay for so long, but now they're staying longer. And they're all together every day. Some might claim Christians are supposed to live so close to one another that we can be together every single day. And we certainly do see the church flourish when the people of God live closer to one another and can do life more. I was in Edgefield for lunch on Friday uh, with a local pastor and had a great lunch. And I saw all these other Christians. And it was great. We were 
saying hello and hugging each other. I saw Tanya and Justin and saw um, Father Rob from, uh, you know, uh, Holy, uh, was it Holy Trinity. Yep. And so anyways, it was great, and it was that kind of thing, where it was Christians enjoying one another, saying hello to each other, having fellowship together in public. Bach says about this, next comes the mention of fellowship, or more precisely, sharing in common. This is the only use of this term in Acts. It occurs 19 times elsewhere in the New Testament, 14 of which are in Paul. The term speaks of communion or fellowship. It was often used of the type of mutuality that takes place in marriage. In this verse, the description appears in a context surrounded by terms of shared activity. And that's the key idea. It's sharing life together. Back to Bach. The term can have overtones of mutual material support that looks to alms and generosity, but this is only a part of the sense, not the whole, as verse 44 will indicate explicitly by using other terms. Still, the word play with this Greek word in verse 44 shows a material element also is involved in the term. Luke points to fellowship to underscore the personal, interactive character of relationships in the early church at all levels. There's a real sense of connection to, between, and for each other. Brothers and sisters, let me put it this way for you. There's no place where you're hurting and having needs that I shouldn't come to your aid. There's no place where you're rejoicing that I shouldn't be rejoicing with you. It doesn't matter what part of life we're talking about. That's the fellowship we're talking about. Because Christ is the Lord of all. And everything belongs to him. And everything about who we are matters to him. It's this level of comprehensive fellowship and also depth of fellowship. The brokenness that we have within us. The places where we want the Lord to help us the most. The joys that we have externally with getting that big job, or just everything from inside to outside and sharing it together with one another. Our, our world is so lonely. Our world is so fragmented. The people of our world are uh, walled up inside their own hearts. And this fellowship blows that apart and shows the world what it means to be human again. This is what the garden would have been like. Okay. But going further, and this is thrilling. Let this, you're going to see this, all right? Gets to the motive, gets to why they're doing it. The fellowship of the fellowship is with God. Our fellowship together is with God. It's not just with one another. And this is most concentrated in 1 John chapter 1. Yeah, it's more in Paul, but it's the, this idea is the most concentrated here in the intro to 1 John chapter 1. We are brought into fellowship with God by our fellowship with one another or through our fellowship with one another. We know God better. We share in fellowship with God when we share in fellowship with one another and vice versa. When we share in fellowship with God together, we are sharing more in fellowship with one another. 1 John 1, 1 through 9. You'll see there I've got some portions of that uh, highlighted because that's where the word fellowship comes up. So just... Focus on the idea of fellowship with God and fellowship with one another as we read 1 John, as I read it to you, verses 1 through 9. That which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Who's he talking about? Jesus, the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen, like he really wants you to get this, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. That which we have seen, see, he wants you to get this. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So there's this beautiful description of what happens in the context of forgiveness of sin and union with God in restored communion. We've talked about this, right? It's not just that we're unified with Christ and one another, but then it opens up the world of communion, the world of fellowship, the world of koinonia. That's what's going on. I want us to note how being brought into that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, being brought into Christ is to be brought into fellowship with us. So to be brought into Christ is to be brought into the church. Fellowship in the church. But then the fellowship of the church is not primarily just with one another, but, quote, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, unquote. Why is Christian fellowship so sweet? Because Christ is in our midst because we are having fellowship together with Christ and he is the one who brings the joy he is the one who brings the confidence he is the one who brings the love he is the one who brings the humility that makes this all possible he is the one who gives us a desire to lay down our lives for one another so are we characterized by steadfast devotion to fellowship with one another does our fellowship with one another display the reality that, quote, truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ? Another way of saying this is, is it Christian fellowship that we have together? Is there an aroma of eternal life that's in our midst? Do we have words on our tongues that are edifying and imparting grace to one another? Do we find that this overarching way of life is defining our speech and our action and our fellowship towards one another day in and day out. Our shared lives together, are they defined by our fellowship with Christ? What steps do we need to take here at our church to be more devoted to the fellowship with one another? What steps do you need to take in order to be steadfastly 
devoted to the fellowship? And how does it happen that our fellowship with one another goes on to display that our fellowship together is truly with God? And, and we've talked about it. I've already mentioned it. It's that we lay down our lives for one another. We love each other. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. So brothers and sisters, not only do we find our pursuit of Christ satisfied by giving attention to the word of God over and over again throughout the days and hours and moments of our lives, and together as the people of God as much as he allows, we also find our pursuit of Christ satisfied by steadfast devotion to the fellowship to the, together. And think of that as the sharing of all things. That's, that's, the best, that's the best, I think, overall way of thinking about it is the sharing of all things together in enjoyment, in gladness, whether it's a meal, whether it's a new life, whether it's death, whatever it is, we share it together. And the people of this world watch us do it with that victory march continuing because we know that nothing can take us from his hands. Nothing can tear us down. So there's steadfast devotion to the apostles' doctrine and steadfast devotion to the sharing of all things, to the fellowship. But then also there's continued, the continued steadfastly in devotion to the breaking of bread. So what is meant here? Well, you know, the fellowship, that term includes eating together. Okay, so it would be somewhat redundant to say, the breaking of bread as just a simple meal. And looking at the commentaries, uh, the agreement is, this is most likely in re reference to the new covenant meal that Jesus Christ instituted while with his disciples on the night of his betrayal. And we see other places where the breaking of bread is shorthand for the Lord's Supper in the new covenant writings. Matthew Henry says, they frequently joined in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. They continued in the breaking of bread in celebrating that memorial of their master's death as those that were not ashamed to own their relation to and their dependence upon Christ and him crucified. You see, not Henry anymore. Nobody wants to associate with a crucified criminal. Jesus said, associate with me and tell the story that I was crucified. In fact, have a meal regularly together. A simple bread and wine meal built around telling the story to the world that an obscure Jewish carpenter crucified outside the walls died for the sins of his people on a Roman cross as a criminal. Tell that story and that he's alive. Back to him. They could not forget the death of Christ, yet they kept up this memorial of it and made it their constant practice because it was an institution of Christ to be transmitted to the succeeding ages of the church. We celebrate the crucifixion. That's what we do over and over. We don't run from it. We don't deny it. See, you have to put yourselves back there with them. Uh, yeah, my master was crucified. No, 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 no. Yeah, come sit, have a piece of bread, have some wine because the master was crucified for his people. And this is worth noting that they... God, in his infinite wisdom, Christ, in his infinite humility, makes his suffering and death the centerpiece of their society. Of course, the resurrection as well. 
But you can't get there without the cross. Luke 22, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. He instituted a new sacrament, replacing all the other ones. All of it summed up in his death on the cross. So this is why, brothers and sisters, we enjoy the Lord's, Lord's Supper every time we come together to worship God as his church, every single time. And if after worship, uh, we were all to go back outside and come back in together, I might be tempted to say, well, I guess let's have the Lord's Supper again. Same day. And then maybe again later on in the day. Because it's not about anything other than celebrating the resurrection of Christ from the dead after he was crucified. And we hold him up as the crucified Lord, the Lamb who was slain, the one whose wounds are yet visible above is our Lord and Master. And we celebrate that. We don't shrink back from that. It is his glory that he was crucified. It is his glory that he suffered like he did. It is his glory that he endured that cross for us. What Paul said is resolved to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And so, Acts 20, verse 7, gives us another example of it. Now, on the first day of the week, okay, this is their Sabbath gathering, when the disciples came together to break bread, there it is, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. This is the Sabbath worship gathering of the church in the book of Acts. Now, I want us to note that the Sabbath meeting of the church to worship God is referred to kind of a shorthand for the worship meeting of the people of God when the disciples came together to break bread. What is the breaking of bread? It is the celebration of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the, celebra the celebration of His resurrection. It is all of worship. All of worship comes together in, in worshiping Christ and the crucified one, the resurrected one. See the extensive teaching of Paul here as well. I think this is the one where the fellow fell out the window. That's a great story. Hey, at least, I, I preach long sometimes, but as far as I know, nobody's fallen out yet. So, <laughs> he preached until the fellow fell out of the window. Steadfastly devoted to the apostles' doctrine. Brothers and sisters, we find our pursuit of Christ satisfied by steadfast devotion, not just to the apostles' doctrine, not just to the fellowship, but also in the breaking of bread, in the Lord's Supper. Next, in the prayers. And that's exactly what it says. Prayers addressed to God. Prayers of every kind. They continued steadfastly in devotion to the prayers to God. They prayed. They were a praying bunch. So this idea that their fellowship was not just with one another, but also with God, it came out. It came out corporately. It came out publicly together. They had faith to know that they were seated in heaven in Mount Zion, and they were engaged with God in heaven through Christ. Christ being seated at their Father's right hand, then being in, in Christ lifted up. And that is true for us today. We have come to Mount Zion. We are in heaven right now. And when we pray, our prayers are filling up the throne room of God. Praise be to God. Our, our, our songs, our, our prayers, even, even now, what's happening, what the, the thoughts in your mind... Those are heavenly thoughts. Those are divine thoughts. The word of God going forth. All of this is happening in heaven. 
not just here. Everything we do here is a sort of prayers because we understand we're doing it unto God. All right. They heard the teaching of the apostles over and over again. They were in fellowship together with one another and with God all the time. They partook of the new covenant meal whenever they could, and they prayed to God. This defined them. This is the way of life of the church of God, pursuing greater love and knowledge and enjoyment of God. Pursuing him to equip them to complete the mission he gave them to survive this life. He sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies. So these are not just private prayers at home. Okay, again, this goes back to the idea of the hermit approach to Christianity, which is very unhealthy. These are the prayers that attend with all elements of Christian worship all elements of the corporate life together. Prayers as we enter. Prayers as we leave. Prayers as we confess our sins. Prayers of rejoicing in the forgiveness of sin. Prayers as we go to the Word. Prayer after the Word. Prayer of gratitude for everything. Prayer around the Lord's Supper. Prayers on the way out, on the way in. Imprecatory prayers. Adoration prayers. Suffering prayers. Every type of biblical communication from us to God all woven together around the Word in the fellowship and the Lord's Supper. All before God. Calvin says, It is certain that he speaks of public prayer. And for this cause, it is not sufficient for men to make their prayers at home by themselves unless they meet all together to pray. So brothers and sisters, in our pursuit of God, our desire for greater communion with God, if we continue steadfastly in devotion to the prayers of God, we will be satisfied. We will find him. And as we continue together in these four things, steadfastly, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, if God were to grant this to us, we can be this thriving church as well. So some questions. As you've listened to this sermon and you consider Foothills Christian Assembly, just a broad question, what things can we do to be more like this church where the victory march began, right? And of course, we don't just go do things, right? It's not just checking boxes, right? How much, and then so part two of the question is, how hungry are we for Christ? Because that's really what this is about. These four activities that God has as a part of his church, again, this is about communion with God. This is about knowing him better, seeing him more clearly, loving him more dearly, obeying him more fully. So what things need to change about us individually, about our church, to be more like this church? It's a big question. And may God lead us. May God grant us wisdom to be, to be more like them. Some more specific questions. <clears throat> what can we do to have more of God's word more teaching, more preaching taking place at Foothills. What can we do? Okay? And, and I don't have the answers for you. Okay? Honestly, these are questions that we need to consider together that I think are important questions. And questions that are fitting is we're considering a name, to the, a, a name change for the church. Right? Because these are kind of beginning kind of questions. You know? Like, who are we? Are we this? Have we compared ourselves to the Bible and said, are we this? What about the fellowship? What can we do to 
be more like the fellowship that we see here. And again, like I said, some of it's circumstantial. I don't think we see a command here that members of the church are required to be together every single day. I'm not saying that. But there is a hunger that goes along with coming to Christ for more frequent sharing of life together. Right? There's a hunger. Everyone here, I see your eyes, your head's nodding. Every one of us want more time together. Now, I mean, eventually the clocks get old. I'll grant you that. But, but, but you know how it is. In general, we just want more fellowship with each other. Is that where your heart is? And what can we do to improve that? What can we do to improve that? To be more like this church. Next, the Lord's Supper. What can we do to grow in the Lord's Supper? Um, I, honestly, I see more areas for possible improvement in the first two. Um, but we can always be considering improving the Lord's Supper as well. Okay. More often, I don't know, do it more biblically, maybe. I don't know. Let, we'll pray about that. The Lord will lead us. And the prayers. Well, you know we have a lot of prayers here. It's one of the things that marks us. You know, we, we do pray a lot here. Um, we pray before meals together. We pray together a lot. But there may be more that we can do in our prayers as well. As a people. Together as a people. One thing we do have is our prayer meetings. Right? And so the prayer meetings are available uh, should we have more? Should we have less? Should they be more accessible? I don't know. What can we do to improve the prayers uh, here at our, at our church? But last question is just going back to where your heart is on this. Um, I, I think if we're looking at who these people were then, they were seized by the power of a strong affection. They were seized by the power of a strong affection. They wanted to be closer to him. They wanted to do his will. They wanted to know him better. They wanted to draw near to him, to love him, and to obey him. And that produced these fruits. Is that where your heart is? Are you like them in that regard? When I was on my knees earlier today, I was confessing to God that I am not like that. I look at my life so often, I am steadfastly devoted to other things that are not obviously deeply committed and submitted to this way of life. So may God show that to us. May God help us see those times in our lives where our hearts uh, love other things and the behaviors flow from that. And he gives us eyes to see it. You can spot it and repent and, and have, if you will, the, the sharp edges, the rough spots smoothed out in our lives. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us, and we ask that you would increase our love for Christ, that, you, that we would know him, and we would love him more, that we would participate in the fellowship with you, O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through Christ our Lord, and that our hearts would rejoice in communion with you, and that we would enjoy you and bring you glory, and that our fellowship would flow from our fellowship with you, O oh God that your word would be before us, that we would enjoy the Lord's Supper celebrating the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus our Lord, and that we would be those who pray. Father, bless us to this end, to be like those who started this victory march all those years ago. In Jesus' name.